John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 115.ps8806, certificate number 50365. The Berkeley Pit. As you know, mining has played a very large role in the the development of the West, the expansion of the West, mining precious metals, silver, gold. Silver strikes in Nevada, gold rush in California. Right, gold rush in Alaska, but also in the black mining hills of Dakota, where there lived a young boy named Rocky Raccoon. Is Rocky Raccoon a Rocky Rocky washing bear? Was he a gold (laughs) miner? Uh Uh, He was a gold miner until he got shot. I guess I didn't know there was Dakota gold. There was, in fact, you know, the uh, as we America expanded to the West, the Dakotas were, uh, and the Black Hills in particular, were regarded as a very sacred ground for Native Americans. Until. <laughs> and there were all these treaties in place, you know, assuring that the Black Hills would be retained as a uh, Native American homeland. And then those first prospectors got out there and realized it was a big mining area. And this is the legend of Deadwood, right? Deadwood is, oh, is a, that was a mining town, a mining town in the black Hills. We uh, just, uh, we just named our new puppy Dakota. Oh, you did. Which I am against. We let the kids name her. Why did they pick Dakota after Dakota Fanning? <laughs> after Dakota Fanning, <laughs> whom they all love. Uh, our previous two dogs have started with a B and a C respectively. So I think they wanted to continue the alphabet. Oh, hoping that you will have 26 dogs in the well, course we, of your lives. We skipped A, so I guess 25. 25 dogs. I don't know what happened. I'm trying to retroactively figure out if there was some fish that started with an A, but there does not appear to. Are they Dalmatians? Are they, are you going to have 25 Dalmatians? Yeah, 25. Just like the famous movie, 25 <laughs> Dalmatians. It goes really well with that white stripe that's starting to appear in your, in your jet black hair. We might have 101 Dalmatians, but like in binaries. Oh. That would be five. Right. Five Dalmatians. Five that's, Dalmatians. That's manageable. Sure. But your new puppy, Dakota, is not a Dalmatian. No, so you need to start over. She's a mini retriever. Um, and I'm against the name Dakota, not just because it kind of sounds like a mean girl from a third grade class, hmm. but also because it's three syllables. And I don't believe dog names should be three syllables. Interesting. Can you expand on this prejudice? No, it's self-evident. I see. I'm sure, of course. <laughs> well, I don't know. Who are the great three-syllable dogs? Rin Tin Tin uh, is literally the only three-syllable dog. Rin Tin Tin, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of another. But, you know, like, I don't... 
I don't know the names of a lot of dogs, I guess. I'm thinking of dogs. You n- Name every dog you know. Go. Checkers. Two. Uh, who's the dog that... that 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 ran the serum to gnome. I should know oh, that. Uh, Balto? Balto. Two. Balto. That's a two-syllable name. Um, Lassie. Two. Uh, uh, what was Dorothy's dog? Toto. Toto, that's two. Toto, Wait. no relation to Balto, the Toe family. Um, whew, trying to think of... Uh, it's just a mouthful when you call yeah. Dakota, and it doesn't seem affectionate. Dakota. Dakota. It sounds like I'm calling the next kid for school pictures. Dakota. Dakota. It doesn't seem like I'm, oh, Dakota... And I don't like Cody either. No, but like the, the D in Dakota is really more of a, uh, it's really more of just an apostrophe, right? Dakota. Like it seems like a K name. Yeah. It's kind of like a, like, like a Dar- native, a native American plosive, which is sort of a Dakota. Or, or, or like D'Artagnan or Dakung. something. Like it's a preposition. Yeah. He's uh, this dog yeah. is of, of Coda. Yeah. Well, anyway, we wound up with a Dakota, even though I have no particular love for Dakota, but I feel bad apparently about what we did to the Black Hills. Yeah, well, it was just one of those things where it was just one more instance of us completely abnegating a treaty that we'd uh, we'd made just recently. The second it was convenient. Yeah, because it was like, well, we can't really keep all these miners out. So anyway, this is kind of like you having a moral objection against internet crowdfunding until you found out. Oh, oh, wait, well, how, gee, you can actually that, make money doing this. What does that check look like? This the same exact thing happened in Oklahoma. Uh, which was the end of the Trail of Tears, right? We were trying to, uh, and but when I say we, I mean <laughs> this the, was not me and you driving <laughs> thousands of Cherokee. Not us. I'm I'm talking about the United States of America trying to corral or trying to ha- having decided that Native Americans and white farmers could not occupy the same land peacefully. Uh, they couldn't coexist because you couldn't have an agrarian culture and a nomadic culture. It doesn't end well for the nomadic culture, for sure. So the idea was, let's move the Native Americans out to the unoccupied West. And so Oklahoma was picked as a land that I think uh, the East Coast elites could not imagine anyone (laughs) wanting anything from Oklahoma. Like, it just seemed like empty nothing. And it becomes a big hole in the country. Like, every state around Oklahoma gets statehood. And there's this pan saucepan-shaped island of Indian territory. Right. Right in the middle, so where no one has to think about them. And then they discovered oil there. And boy, wasn't that a problem. Because all of a sudden, this land was incredibly valuable, and we had given it away as nothing land to Native Americans. And so then began a very awful chapter in the American Southwest where we basically stole all that land back. You know, if I gave somebody, if I sold somebody a box of junk from my garage and they later found an emerald brooch or a valuable Spider-Man comic, which is probably more likely in my garage, right? I would not say, hey, just kidding. Um, I'm now going to come to your house and take the box back. Well, interestingly, in the Dakotas, this happened in the 19th century. And so it was still, you know, they were still playing pretty fast and loose. And it was like, oh, that treaty we wrote... We're just, you know, let's like, let's do that. Let's get a do-over on that. But uh, the the oil rush in Oklahoma happened in the 1920s. And we had already crossed over to a place where you couldn't just, you couldn't just draw a big X in the treaty. And so what happened was it became a game to buy the land from the nominal owners of it 
didn't didn't some tribes I, I was under the impression some tribes did were able to to profit from their land ownership once the oil was discovered. Yeah, well, and the idea, of course, was that they all would profit because a lot of what happened were uh, was that uh, oil companies came in and leased the land, but there were all kinds of financial shenanigans such that the owners of the land ended very up, little money, very little money trickled, trickled down. down. Right, but mineral extraction is a big part of the story of the American West. And it's also a big part of my morning hygiene routine. Mineral extraction. Just all kinds of weird, crusty <laughs> things that I have to take out of my orifices now that I'm in my 40s. Have you ever looked at your body under a black light? Uh, like no. your naked body. I don't even want to look at one of those big hotel mirrors that let you see all your pores. There's no way I'm looking at a black light. I highly recommend in the dark, if you have access to a black light, sometimes shine it on your naked body and see all the amazing, uh, things that, uh, that glow. Sometimes at Disneyland, I just like strip off my clothes when I'm on one of the black light rides. Like mm. if I'm on <laughs> Peter Pan's, um, what's it called? Peter Pan's magic flight or whatever. Yeah. I haven't been in a sure. long time. I'll just I'll just pop off my clothes and I'll see what uh, what glows. Just see what nature has brought. <laughs> right. What nature has wrought. I'm not allowed to go back to Fantasyland, by the way. <laughs> it turns out that wasn't everyone's fantasy. Uh, but the American West mineral extraction. I ruined your segue. No, no, no. That was a, you know what? I won't even let you ride my Segway. That, there's no chance you're going to ruin it. I keep it parked in my barn when you come. Unless there's black light on a vehicle, I'm not interested. Uh. A big part of what drove the expansion into the West was the repeated discovery of mineral riches there. I mean, uh, uh, farmers came and and ranchers came, but really uh, um, what spearheaded a lot of the exploration of the West was the prospect of gold. And that's why all the ghost towns, right? That's right. Ranchers would stick around. Miners will mine a place out and then leave a a town just full of horse ghosts. Sure. San Francisco is... A notable exception, a city that was built on mining wealth and continues to thrive. Seattle, too, was built on the exploitation of Alaskan gold. It's interesting how um, these mining settlements that sprouted up maybe didn't have to be there. You know, uh, Portland was in competition with St. John's and a bunch of other ports on the Willamette or on the Columbia as to, you know, what would be the big city. And all these places are scrambling to not become ghost towns, I guess. Uh, Portland happens to win because it's the, I guess, the furthest deep water. It's the furthest a boat can get upstream or something. Uh, on the Willamette. Right, on the Willamette. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of towns in the West that used to be big deals and now are either ghost towns or much smaller deals. And sort of first among those is the town of Butte, Montana. which I don't think of Butte as a ghost town. No, it's not at all. But at one, you also probably don't think that of Butte as the largest city in the West between Chicago and San Francisco. Which it would have been. Which it once was. Ah. Uh, Butte, Montana was... I think of it as a place I stopped on, uh, coming back from Yellowstone once, and my kids liked churning the butter and looking at the old-timey radio at some frontier heritage museum. Yeah, it's it, right now it's rocking a very, like, frontier, ye olde roadside stop vibe. I think I had a bison burger there or elk mm-hmm. or something. I wouldn't be surprised. It seemed, I liked Montana. It's beautiful. Montana is spectacular. And in fact, uh, big people, sky country people in Montana probably don't like us saying that because they don't want people coming to Montana. I don't think except as tourists, but they don't want you to come by their big, big sky. 
So they, should we have a cover story? We should say leave Oklahoma. Leave the big sky alone. alone. Oh, yeah, definitely go to Oklahoma. Oklahomans really want you to visit. <laughs> uh, is the sky actually bigger in big sky country, or is that like the moon illusion? No, it, uh, well, I think it is an illusion, but it is a profoundly true illusion. When you're in Montana, you never saw a sky so big. And to what do you credit that? Have we talked about this on the Omnibus? I have some vague memory that maybe in the Lake Missoula episode we talked about this. Yeah, I credit it to the... Is it to the lack of trees? The lack of trees and and uh, and the the wide sort of uh, open, I mean, 360 degree views, certainly in Western Montana. And also very, very tall cumulonimbus clouds oh. that, uh, that give this tremendous height to Towering the horizon. Maxfield Parish storm clouds. I think right. you're right about that. It's, yeah. It could be a climatological phenomenon, not just a topological one. Yeah, you look, you have a, this expansive view, but you can see these clouds not just at a distance, but, you know, they're miles high. So right. you really, it, it lifts the roof off of Montana. If I went to Montana, I would want to live in the clouds. In the clouds. Actually in the clouds. Up in the clouds. I want to be uploaded into the clouds. <laughs> into the cloud? Yeah, in some kind of Lando Calrissian type oh, Montana. Sure. Because Butte is nice. The Elk Burger with arugula was fine. It was better mm -hmm. than I was expecting in a mm -hmm. town that size. Mm -hmm. um, but it does look a lot like the word butt. Uh, butte, yeah. <laughs> or or, or butte. <laughs> Kids think the word butte is hilarious. That's the one thing I remember from looking at Road Atlas. Is, oh, because it says boy. butt with an E? Yeah, it's yeah. very close to butt. Kids should never be allowed to look at atlases. That's just a first principle. The Montana page was taped together in ours because of the dirty city names. <laughs> not, not just butte, but... Taped together or stuck together? <laughs> Anaconda? That's just awful. I know. Well, and Anaconda, Anaconda actually plays uh, a significant role in this story. Oh, I, I was helping you there. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> uh, Butte was a, originally a mining town, mining silver and gold through, um, through shaft mining. I mean, uh, you they know, and actually again. Actually digging tunnels. Digging tunnels. But there was also a, a, a lot of copper in the ore that they were pulling out. And copper is obviously less valuable an ore than gold or silver. But we're building an electrical grid the size of a continent That's at the right. time, right? That's right. So in the late 19th century, suddenly copper became an industrial metal worth a, a lot of money, and we needed a lot of it. King copper, they might have said. King copper. I have no idea if anyone said that. People did say king copper. In fact, really? uh, in fact the industrialists of the, the copper boom were known as the copper kings. They were actually, they made a giant copper king. Uh, like a rat king. And set it on its, yeah. <laughs> they tied all their little <laughs> copper wire tails together. There were 300 men with big bushy sideburns who were all scrambling together in a knot. No, I'm picturing a giant 50 foot tall copper man, kind of looking like the Michelin man, but made out of gleaming red copper, like a tea kettle. Oh. And all these millionaires stripped down to nothing and worship it in weird rituals in the dead of night. Oh, that's a weird thing to picture. That did not happen as far as I know. I am constantly picturing this and I will not rest till I find evidence that this actually well, happened. We, you know, if we have the power, maybe in the future, we can have the futurelings build this for us. This, this giant <laughs> copper man of which I dream. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. 
Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. But the the exploitation of copper in the mines around Butte caused a, an explosion in population and in wealth. Uh, Butte became a thriving sort of mini metropolis uh, with, with tremendous mineral wealth there. Millionaires were being made. And the and Anaconda is the, the mining company, is so, that right? So Anaconda was a mine. It became the mining company, and ultimately it became a mining conglomerate that was for a while the one of the largest trusts in America, sort of during that age of trusts, a corporation. A, a, a monopolizing corporation that became known as the Amalgamated Copper Company. That sounds fake. It, it totally does. Sounds like it's something out of a Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> but John D. Rockefeller ended up uh, being an owner. Um, it was, you know, this was the age of the great robber baron, and copper was playing a, an enormous role. And the the mines were still producing gold and silver, but in order to smelt all this material, they were also building giant smelters, uh, both in Big Sky and in the town of Anaconda, where they built um, a smelter that for a while, the smokestack was the largest smokestack in the world. It retains the title. It still exists to this day. Is this in Butte? This is in the town of Anaconda, which is 40 miles south of Butte, something like that. Uh, the, The smokestack is still there, and it retains the title as the largest or the tallest masonry structure in the world. It's, it was a big brick smokestack, big n- brick nothing smoke- for miles around, and then this giant. And it and it does. It stands up like that. It's taller than the um, than the Washington Monument. You could actually fit the Washington Monument inside the Anaconda stack if you were like a huge weirdo. If, if you were a giant copper man <laughs> who went to Washington D.C., stole the Washington Monument, you and w- could, wanted to do something really phallic with it, you could stick it in the hole of the big. Well, it'd be like double phallic, right? You'd put the penis in the penis. It's the, oh, yeah, I guess the, the smokestack can be Smokestack's both. also very phallic. I guess. And Butte is a boom town. So Butte was uh, the ultimate boom town. I love big Buttes, and I cannot <laughs> lie. <laughs> in fact, my anaconda don't want Where's none. my bell? <laughs> <laughs> my anaconda don't want none. No. Unless you're an anaconda. So uh, I just wanted to... Yeah, quote, quote, you wanted to make Baby some... got back. Mm-hmm. I had nowhere to go with that, actually. Um, and so what happens in Butte? Uh, so Butte thrives. It thrives and thrives. Uh, there's an era where the copper magnates are warring against one another. Um, it's before they amalgamate. It's before they amalgamate. Once they all amalgamate and turn into their giant copper Voltron man, they, the war ends, I assume. Butte became a, became a destination for immigrants to, to come work in the mines. Uh, it's still Butte, Montana to this day 
it has the largest population of Irish people per capita of any city in America. So it is like little, so it's still a lawless wasteland, little probably. Dublin. And it, and it really, you really get the feeling there. Uh, there are Irish gangs. There's a lot of, uh, Irish, still Irish gangs. Yeah, there are. There's it's like a, a Martin Scorsese movie in the middle of Montana. There's a lot of fisticuffs. People like square off against each other and sock one another in the jaw. Uh, Donnie see, Brooks. You see, there are Donnie Brooks. You see a lot of four leaf clovers on things. Um, I would love to go there and see a good Donnie Brook. That sounds amazing. Butte had one of the last surviving active red light districts in the United States. Into the 1980s, there was sort of an open brothel culture in Butte. I guess you can take the copper mining out of the town, but it's still a copper mining town. That's right. My good friend, Dan McGree, his family, and I think the McGree... <laughs> Dan, McGree, <laughs> Dan McGree, a character from a Robert Service poem I have invented for this story. He's a real man, and I think he had something like seven or nine brothers. I don't remember how many. I knew him in college. His family owned the, I, I want to say, the garbage trucks of Butte, Montana. A lot of fisticuffs, a lot of Donnybrooks. A lot of people falling into um, city dumps. Falling down mine shafts, I think. <laughs> All right. If you visit Butte today, you'll actually see a lot of the um, a lot of the head frames of the old mine shafts are still there. It's kind of a an emblem of the city of Butte. You can see head uh, head frames all around in neighborhoods, even uh, lo the locations of the old mine shafts in town. In town, yeah. But eventually, did it get mined out? Was or did copper prices fall, or what happened? Well, so what ended up happening in Butte is that the Anaconda Copper Company decided that it was too difficult and expensive to mine copper in mine shafts. Their anaconda didn't want none. Their, their anaconda continued to want some. Uh, actually, there was a the, the biggest mining, I'm sorry, uh, mine shaft or underground mining disaster in American history was the speculator mine disaster that happened in Butte. Uh, and somebody set a fire down. Uh, some It was like you know, Miss Bessie's cow knocked over a bucket of kerosene. But in this case, it's an Irishman instead of a cow. Yeah, somebody took an uninsulated or an insulated wire down there. It was shorting out. A guy with a headlamp lit the uh, oil-soaked casing on fire. And, and because of the nature of a mine shaft, it became a giant chimney. Oh, wow. And, uh, and just immolated a couple hundred miners down there. 168 dead and many were just barricaded in and died after like you know days later after leaving notes this is awful yeah it was pretty terrible and just like all mining disasters it is a decemberist song of course did you know this <laughs> of course the decemberists wrote a song about it they are required by law to write a song about every maritime or mining disaster in, that's right in that's western right. history rocks in the box 2011 rocks in the box from the king is dead correct Uh, well, you know, Colin Malloy uh, is actually a, a Missoulin, and the Malloys... He sounds like an Irish Missoulin. Well, in fact, the Malloys are a long-standing Montana family. Uh, his grandfather... Ran the red light district. I don't think so, but they were, promi they were prominent, uh, prominent Montanans going back a few generations. Spe Irishmen. The Speculator Mine is not a great name for a mine. I would not invest in the Speculator Mine. We hope there's some copper here. I, th I think, you know, the word speculation has a different connotation in mining cultures. Uh, you see it a lot. 
You also see the word anaconda quite a bit. <laughs> More than you'd think. <laughs> I guess it gets lonely down there in the dark, you know? Uh, the Anaconda Mining Corporation actually opened an open pit mine in Chile that became a, uh, their lar- by far their largest and most profitable mine. At the same time, like early uh, 20th century? They started expanding and, uh, and opened this mine in the middle of the 20th century, and it became a real uh, money earner for them. And so in the early 50s, they realized that if they were going to continue to profit from Butte and the big, the load there... Uh, that what made sense was to turn it into an open pit mine. And so... Uh, so I guess it's you can extract less concentrated copper with less effort, is that right? It becomes cheaper just to take, just to move the dirt off of it rather than to, to the expense and the danger of digging down following the vein. When I lived in Salt Lake City, we were just a few miles from... You, you can see from downtown Salt Lake what looks like this massive, weirdly colored mountain on the horizon... And it's the dirt that came out of the, the Kennecott copper mine there just west of town, the, the Bingham County mine, which is the biggest thing ever dug by mankind. Yeah, the Kennecott mine, th- this mine in Chile uh, that's owned by Anaconda is the second largest open pit mine after the Kennecott mine outside of Salt Lake. Probably a lot of local pride there between Utah uh-huh. and Chile competing. Because <laughs> uh-huh. you want to have a huge... Ugly gash on your horizon. That's what you want. And you you in Salt Lake call it the Kennecott mine, but it's really the Bingham copper mine. And it, Oh, right. Everybody it, says, I think Kennecott's the company. Is that right? Kennecott is the company named after the Kennecott copper mine in Alaska. Oh. So the Kennecott mine in Alaska is actually... Why is in it the town na- of Kennecott. Why is it named after a different further away? <laughs> is that like, you know, naming Rome, New York after Rome, Italy or yeah, something essentially, like We just wanted to capture the, the mystique and romance of the Kennecott Copper Mine in Alaska. So, Well, the Kennecott Copper Company of Alaska went and bought the Bingham Copper Mine. It's an actually interesting story. The Bingham brothers pioneered that land, discovered copper, and went to Brigham Young and said, we've discovered copper on our land. Should we mine it? Brigham v. Brigham. And Brigham Young said, do not mine the copper. It's more important right now for us as a Mormon people to establish ourselves as farmers and ranchers here. And if you start mining, it's going to turn a boom town. It's going to attract all these. uh, He knew how it would change that culture. Yeah, it will attract all these undesirables. So sit on it. You know, don't mine it. And eventually the Bingham brothers moved on and started ranching somewhere else. Could, did he politically stop them? Or were well, they, it, were they uh, you know, faithful Mormons who would do whatever Brigham Young said? They were. In the early days of the, the settlement there, everybody went to Brigham to find out what, what the plan was. And it was a very centrally controlled culture. I mean, yeah, American Moses, if he tells you, yeah, you could be a copper millionaire, but... I don't think I'm going to let you. I guess you're yeah. like, well, I guess we're not copper millionaires. That's kind of what, not what we're doing right now. Uh, and he did. I mean, it was, you know, Brigham uh, uh, Young, I don't have to tell you, was um, ran that whole enterprise, the early settlement. Yeah, real um, strong personality kind of made the whole culture in his image. Well, so the Bingham brothers moved on. And uh, although the Bingham Copper Mine retains their name, they had nothing to do with it. It was, you know, later on, um, later people came along and said, hey, you know, there's this copper just lying around on the ground here. And Brigham Young's ghost appears. 
and said, whoa. Is he saying whoa to a ghost horse? Uh, he came in the form of a horse. I don't know if you know this. But <laughs> yeah, I've seen this Twin Peaks episode. Yeah, but Brigham Young, when he reappears now, it's always in the shape of a horse. Speaking of Disneyland, which I was earlier, there's a longstanding urban legend that the funeral hearse outside the Haunted Mansion was used at Brigham Young's funeral. Is that true? This often gets told at Disneyland and in Utah, oddly, and there appears to be no evidence for it whatsoever. It actually is a leftover prop from a Munsters episode. <laughs> it's from an episode of Rawhide. <laughs> um, so I don't know what, uh, yeah, I don't know if uh, there's ghost horses there or not, but not Brigham Young's ghost horses anyway. Well, a big part of what makes industrial scale exploitation of copper possible is railroads. You know, you're moving an awful lot of dirt and stuff. Um, it's not like gold or silver where you can have a kind of small scale operation and, and make a bunch of money just pulling. Just an old guy with a pan and no teeth. Right. Pulling gold out by the handful, you know, to really profit from copper, you have to move a lot of dirt. But in Butte, the decision to switch to open pit mining was complicated because the town was actually built on the hill. And there were, as I say, head frames all throughout the neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. But the the historical Irish neighborhood of Dublin Gulch was built sort of right on top of the of the mother load, as well as Butte's Chinatown, which was a kind of famous Chinatown in the West because a lot of Chinese went there. Oh yeah, yeah. Be Beijing Gulch. <laughs> Beijing Gulch. But because the wealth of the load was so great and because these neighborhoods, Dublin Gulch and Chinatown, were working class, sort of poor mine worker neighborhoods, there was a little bit of an effort to actually pick up those houses and move them, relocate them. But for the most part, those neighborhoods were just destroyed. And in their place, a giant pit was dug right in the heart of the city of Butte. What a feeling of pride they must have to go back to their old neighborhood and see that it's now a giant open pit. A giant open pit. Um, when Henry VIII built his Nunsuch Palace, there was a village there, and he didn't care because he was Henry VIII. He was the Brigham Young of his day. And he just uh, built a giant castle and said the peasants could relocate if they wanted. But at least those people going home would be like, hey, I used to live in the King's Castle. Right. But not so for the poor Irish and Chinese immigrants of Butte, Montana, who can just say, uh, I used to live in what is now that ugly pit. Well, some effort was made by the Anaconda Copper Company to pay market value for the land of the homes that were being torn down to dig this pit. Uh, although, you know, what was the market value of a home in Dublin, Gulch, in Butte, Montana they in They have a very strong bargaining <laughs> position, too. You know, they are amalgamated, and yeah. the Irish and Chinese are not. Yeah, here's your, here's your $520. Take it or, or leave it. But they did dig this pit, and they extracted a tremendous amount of copper from the hole. But they dug a pit 1,700 feet deep. And, um, wow. about a mile long and a half a mile wide, a huge, a huge hole as part of their extraction of all this precious metal. And, and in addition to an enormous amount of copper, they also pulled gold and silver out too. It was a, it was a very profitable load. Does it have a big pile of dirt next to it? Like the one in Utah? Like it must. Well, 1700 feet and a mile long. Yeah. Mine tailings, uh, surround the pit. They're cleaning up the one in Salt Lake, by the way. There's kind of a big process underway to, to make it less, to de-uglify 
the mine tailings of the Kennecott mine. Well, the problem... I don't, I don't know what you do. Do you paint them? The problem in the Berkeley pit is not just a problem of ugliness. Okay. What's the problem in the Berkeley pit? Then? So by the late 70s... Um, Wait, why is it... By the, why, by the way, you just dropped that in. Why is it the Berkeley pit? Well, so it was named after the original mine on the site. The, uh, the shaft mine was called the Berkeley mine. And, you know, they all get names. There's the Harvey mine and there's the Anaconda mine, which gave its name to the company. The Berkeley pit sounds like a club. It like, does kind uh, of. Remember when we saw? <laughs> I don't mean that kind of club. <laughs> I mean, I saw Jefferson Airplane at the Berkeley Pit in oh, 1967 yeah. or something like that. Sure, like the Greek Theater. Uh, it's right next door to the Berkeley Pit. Right. Well, it's not related to it Berkeley. It does sound California. like a gay bar too. You're right. You're not yeah. wrong. <laughs> but it's not related to Berkeley, California. It's probably a guy named Berkeley. Yeah, some some other connection to it. Um, yeah, and I, I think I think being called the Berkeley Pit maybe initially was kind of complimentary, but it has become, at least in the West, a, um, I mean, Berkeley Pit is synonymous with, uh, with an environmental catastrophe, which I will explain now. Oh, what happened? So in the, in the mid-70s, the Anaconda Copper Company was purchased by the Atlantic Richfield Company, ARCO, who thought that they were, you know, they, ARCO was... ARCO's a petroleum company, isn't they it? They are, but they were trying to diversify in the style of the time. They want to amalgamate a little. They wanted to amalgamate and become a resource extraction company. I have a little LLC of my own that I use for my endeavors. and I, w- I And I would like it to amalgamate things. Would you like to buy any of my companies? Uh, are any of them copper mines? Mm, not presently. If you ever have a copper mine, this yeah. is like Settlers of Catan, I will give you two <laughs> grains and one water for your copper mine. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. What ended up happening was um, Atlantic Richfield determined that the mine was not profitable. And in 1982, maybe not coincidentally, on Earth Day, (laughs) uh, they shut down the open pit mine. So it was opened in 1955 and it closed in 1982. Oh, it wasn't an open pit mine until the 50s. Uh, They started digging it in the 50s, yes. Uh, Before that, they were all shaft mines. I was picturing like some old West town getting holes dug in it, but this is Eisenhower era America and and, and and they're still sticking it to the Irish and the Asian immigrants. It was an old West town uh, that had survived until the fifties. It had then, gulch in the name. Like yeah. not a lot of fifties suburbs in my memory have gulch in the name. <laughs> no, no, but that's why they were digging it up because there wasn't as re- uh, much respect for towns with the name gulch <laughs> right. in the fifties as there would be now. It's hard. Sometimes you get a good country singer that comes out of a gulch or a holler, but that's about it. 
And I'll, really, if they're digging an open pit mine there, it's just a bigger gulch when you well, think about it. Well, you know who it's came, getting gulchier. You know who came out of uh, Dublin Gulch in Butte, Montana? I have no idea. No less of a person than Evil Knievel. Wait, is that right? Yeah, Evil like, Knievel. Like he came out of it on a motorcycle? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, it's one thing he didn't jump over is the Berkeley pit. Uh, so the tragedy is that when they closed the Berkeley pit mine, they also stopped, they turned off the water pumps that were keeping the groundwater from filling up the mine. The whole time they were digging, they had pumps keeping they, they out had, groundwater. They had pumps keeping they're, out they're groundwater. Because they're so low, they're, you know, at or below the aquifer. Right. And in turning off the pumps, the aquifers in the region began filling up the pit. And this was not a catastrophe that they realized initially. Sure, it seems fun, like an old standby-me quarry where yeah. the kids play. Oh, look, it's the water is rising. It was rising at the level of about a foot a month. But as the water rose, the pit filled to a depth of about 900 feet with, of water. Wow. Which leached heavy metals and acids from the mine tailings and from the whole process of both the digging and the exposure, the dust of all this mine exploitation. And as the, the water became more acidic, it mixed with oxygen and became and seeped more sort of sulfides. It's eating more of the edge of it away. Right. Until the, until the water in the Berkeley pit became essentially an acid similar in acidity to lemon juice or like ammonia bleach. It's a, just a giant hole filled with sulfuric acid. Right. Such that it was one of the things that inspired the Superfund cleanup legislation of the mid-80s. There were several environmental disasters in this era uh, or recognition of disasters like mm -hmm. the um, Love, Love Canal. Canal. Uh, there was a thing in Kentucky where, where they discovered like a giant field where people had just been dumping 50 gallon drums of it, of heavy chemicals for decades. Seattle's Gasworks Park was never a super fun site, but it was also deeply contaminated, right? I used to play on the playground there as a kid and my parents were always like, don't dig a hole. Yeah. Like, this, and this is true all across the United States. Down you're you're going to hit arsenic like in three inches. Down in Tacoma, there was the Asarco smelter which also for a while had the largest smokestack in the world. Wait uh, a second. You just told me something else. was Oh, the largest masonry smokestack. Well, but the thing is, the largest smokestack in the world was a kind of race. Uh, and so if you look at the largest smokestacks in the world, a lot of them only held the title for like 10 years, and then somebody <laughs> would build a larger smokestack. This is even more transparent than guys getting a big truck. I you're think, like, I'm going to, I'm going to build a really big smokestack way bigger than yours. The largest smokestack in the world now is in Kazakhstan and it's something like 1200 feet high or the something. The space station keeps but hitting it, it. But it's made of concrete. So it doesn't, it, it doesn't threaten the Anaconda stack, which is masonry. Which is actual brick. But so here in the center of the town of Butte, Montana, and I mean in the center. If oh, you, really? If you go visit Butte and you're walking up and down the, the ye olde streets, you know, playing like cowboy, uh, and, then, and it's a beautiful town because during its wealthy heyday, you know, dozens and dozens of the most beautiful Victorian mansions, painted ladies, um, the downtown is a, is a classic, awesome old west town. What you're not aware of is 
hundreds of feet away, mere, just like across the street. It's a bubbling vat from a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. Yeah, invisible to you because it's a pit. (laughs) You can walk over and, you know, you're just in the town. You walk over, you come to a fence and you look down and it's like 1,500 feet down to a cauldron of toxic chemicals. In fact, it's a tourist site. You can pay an admission fee and walk through a tunnel and out onto a platform where you're suspended above the pit. Is it one of the things where they have the, the glass floor? So you can... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's well, a super fun site and it's a tourist attraction. Both things. That doesn't seem great. But, but m- mitigating the damage is incredibly complicated because there's so much water in the pit. Yeah, what do you do? And, and it continues to rise. There's actually so much metal dissolved in the water that they've now figured out a way to mine the water <laughs> as they try and as they try and filter this water they can pull meaningful amounts of uh, of magnesium or whatever cadmium there's still copper in it that you can get 400,000 pounds of copper a month just out of the water I see isn't that nuts it's insane the water is so acidic that uh, as recently as 2015 uh, there was an incident, this happened in the 90s too, where thousands of snow geese oh, no. in their migratory pattern. They see uh, oh, from the air, oh, look at this nice lake. Look at this beautiful lake. And they swoop down uh, and in, in the thousands onto the lake and S- died. Oh my gosh. Uh, were burned by the acid. Corrosive. And people in Butte woke up the next day and there were like thousands of dead geese floating on their in their Berkeley pit. And then also a lot of the geese that managed to fly away, died later, were found all dead in a Walmart parking lot somewhere. Their insides being corroded by the bad water they drank probably. Right. And so, so the Berkeley pit actually has like goose scaring sounds. They try and frighten migratory birds away from landing on the surface. It's not a thing that you go down to the Berkeley pit and go swimming in the summer. <laughs> I would imagine not. I'm sure it's the origin story for pretty much all Montana supervillains. Sure, right. They they fell into the pit and came out the other side as Copper Man. <laughs> the Anaconda, the Speculator, Durr. like all, all of my greatest enemies. <laughs> old, old Dublin Gulch himself. <laughs> Dublin Gulch, the Speculator. But the here's the danger. Well, it already sounds pretty dangerous if you're a goose. It's very dangerous, but it is confined. But the real danger is that as the water level in the Berkeley pit rises, it (laughs) comes closer and closer to the level of the natural groundwater. At present time, it is, um, it's within 150 feet of the level of the groundwater. And right next to it is the Clark Fork of the Columbia River. Oh, is this is this a major? So these are some of the shed? headwaters of. Um, so there's a there's a the traditional creek that runs through Butte is called the Silver Bow Creek, which was a dumping area for all these mines for um, for a century. It feeds into the Clark Fork, which ends up draining. The Clark Fork goes through Missoula. It drains all of this part of Montana because Butte is on the Continental Divide. Wow. So you could contaminate, you know, both sides of the continent. Either direction. And then the Clark Fork ends up going into Lake Pendoreal. How is that pronounced? That can't be right. Pendore, maybe? Pendore. There's a street, there's a road named for it uh, on the University of Washington. Let's call it Pendore. I liked Pandoreal. It's like Weird Al's um, <laughs> beautiful girlfriend. 
Uh, it drains into Lake Pendore in Idaho, which then forms a part of the headwaters of the Columbia River. This is, by the way, essentially the plot of the new Mission Impossible movie. Is it? Yeah, that you could contaminate like a whole continent's water by doing something dirty in the wrong place. Well, so if the, if the groundwater continues to rise or the, the, the water in the Berkeley pit continues to rise and reaches the level of the groundwater, uh, it in fact could contaminate this entire watershed all the way across, uh, all the way up into Canada, down it as far as Oregon and into the, into the Columbia, all the way to the Pacific ocean. So we're speaking to an audience for whom this could have already happened. Well, how can we possibly mitigate it? What are we trying to do? Well, like all super, this is the premier super fun site. And we're, you it's, know. It's not just super fun. It's like uber fun. It's super duper fun. Meta fun, super duper fun. <laughs> and they are, I mean, we're using all of our, uh, we're using all of our strength, all of our, <laughs> Who is we here? You and the defenders of Montana? It's like the, you know, it's like the scene where the Godfather goes and asks the undertaker to use all of his powers to bring, to make his boy <laughs> look better sunny. for his wife. Yeah. Um, but this is a kind of like a, literally a backwater in American culture now. Nobody's really thinking about this looming catastrophe. Uh, I am the, now, John. Thank mountains. you. Uh, and and futurelings may in fact be giant copper creatures that are that were all uh, formed from the sludge yeah, of uh, electroplated. They were living in the ocean as little little uh, midi chlorians, and then they became electroplated with copper, and that, then that was what turned them into world conquering monsters. I understand that there are like algae and microbial populations that live in the Berkeley Pit and are being studied for you know whatever kind of you know it's some new life form. Basically. Sure, they're very resilient and also are capable of to a certain extent, processing heavy metals and neutralizing them as they eat their component toxicities. So this could be our successors uh, on the planet. This could be the, the Berkeley pit could be the Olduvai Gorge of futureling life. That's right. Where it all started. Futurelings will, will be listening to this program and going the Berkeley pit. You mean the cradle of civilization where we, dad makes us go on vacation. (laughs) The Mesopotamia of our entire peoples. They all go back to the, uh, to the Berkeley pit and uh, celebrate the beginning of an entire culture, I guess. Yeah, that's right. And uh, let's hope that it is contained that those uh, organisms do spawn from the Berkeley pit, but that it doesn't overflow its banks and uh, stink up the whole, the whole of the West. I mean, further down the Columbia river, of course we have the Hanford Superfund site which also has this same exact problem that the 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 nuclear waste of Hanford is seeping into the groundwater there and at a certain point will having reached the groundwater will then potentially contaminate the Columbia River from that point down well these microbes are Adam and Eve for somebody you know to us they're just some weird yeast but to somebody they could be Adam and Eve and that concludes the Berkeley Pit. Entry number 115.ps8806, certificate number 50365, in the omnibus. It's possible that social media still exists in your area, future uh, uh, arsenic yeasts or whatever you are. Both um, in your area and your era. <laughs> that's right. You can, you can climb out of the sludge, and uh, if Twitter still exists in some form, uh, our tweets were long archived at Omnibus Project. Um, 
that was also our handle on Instagram. Uh, I haven't done this in a minute. Yeah. What's the other one? Facebook? Yeah, you were gone. Uh, but Futurelink should know that we are picking our, our show back up after Ken was gone for a full two-month-long vacation around the world. That's not exactly what happened. I came back twice, but one time you forgot, and the other time you were on a motorcycle driving well, yeah, through Oregon. Well, yeah, I forgot because I don't carry your vacation schedule around in my wallet <laughs> as a laminated card. I have made that <laughs> card available to all our listeners. There's no reason you shouldn't have one. Uh, yes, I'm out of practice. Um, John's Instagram account was mm-hmm. at John Roderick. I was at Ken Jennings on both Instagram and Twitter. People even emailed us. Uh, if you know what that is, at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Sometimes they mailed us physical items. Please send us copper sludge yeasts or whatever else is relevant to our interests at Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744. Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Future listeners, future lings, if you will. Lings and listeners are now synonyms. From our vantage point in your distant past, pre-Berkeley Pitt overflow, pre-Hanford overflow, back when the worst thing that could happen was that the Decembrists would write a song about you. <laughs> that song is probably the national anthem <laughs> of future Earth. Like Earth Day 1982 is their 4th of July, and Colin Malloy is like their uh, Betsy Ross. We have no idea how long our civilization was still able to drink clean water unaffected by, before, by arsenic. Before, before you entered into all our circulatory systems and corroded <laughs> us from within. Thank you, by the way. Thank you, future overlords. Uh, We hope and pray uh, that the catastrophe at least waits a little bit longer uh, for our children to develop an immunity. It's too late for us. I just just want to see the giant copper man. I know. If I'm going to die that way, I want to die at its its giant (laughs) copper hands. King (laughs) Copper. God, this sounds more and more like a like a Dokken album. (laughs) Or no, Dokken wasn't hard enough for this. This sounds this sounds like an accused record. But it's coppery too, so it's also some kind of um, old timey, uh, you know. My morning jacket kind of thing going on. Right. I, I don't. I don't know what kind of music has a giant copper tea kettle robot. Hmm. Maybe it's a band of horses concept album that hasn't been made yet. Yeah, a side metal project for band of horses. Anyway, uh, if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Mm-hmm.